0: Tetelestai was the final cry of Jesus from the cross, and it means it is finished. But what is it that was finished? If the victory is won and the battle's over, why is life so hard? And how should we live in this challenging time, considering what he said? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pryn from Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply. By the Bible, and we're going to answer all these questions and more in our lesson today entitled, Tetelestai, If the Battle is Finished, Why is Life So Hard? It's more than a word for Easter. In many Easter sermons, we're reminded that Jesus' final word from the cross, as recorded in John, was tetelestai, which translated from the Greek means it is finished. Tetelestai is an incredible word, and not just because it sounds great and it's fun to say, but for the multitude of meanings and implications wrapped up in it and the questions that it inspires. That's what I would like to explore here. What exactly did Jesus finish on the cross? And what does it mean to me? Though Easter is the event that motivated my exploration of the word, when I look at it closely, the questions it raises, the implications of it, the applications inspired by it, all go far beyond Easter. First, what was finished when Jesus cried, Tetelestai, as his last words from the cross? In brief, now finished, was the work of our salvation, the healing of the breach with our Creator. The price of our redemption was paid. Peace with God was accomplished. It was the ending of a story thousands of years in the making. The making of this story is one of the reasons why I encourage everyone to read their Bibles in chronological order. The story of redemption is progressing, and it's only when you read it chronologically are you able. Able to see clearly God's work through the ages. Now allow me to briefly review it for you. In the beginning, humanity was created to walk with God in a perfect paradise forever. Adam and Eve lived in peace and harmony with each other, their creator, and their world. But somehow, some way, that wasn't enough for them. They wanted the one thing God told them they could not have, to eat, from the, to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan entered their paradise and promised them, if they did eat it, a special knowledge, something they thought God was keeping from them. We know what happened next. They trusted Satan rather than God. They thought they knew better than God did what was best for them. Instead of the wisdom they thought they were getting, the consequences of their actions were far more terrifying and far-reaching than they could have foreseen. Their actions introduced death and evil into the world, and a world history of estrangement from God, sadness, sin, hunger, and pain. But the same God who created them understood completely what they'd done. He also knew Adam and Eve on their own could not do anything to right what had gone wrong. There was no do-over. Blaming each other, blaming the serpent, sorrow and regret had no effect on the consequences. They were inevitable. Humanity could never heal the rift they created. But just as the consequences of sin are inevitable, it was also inevitable as part of the character of God that he would respond in grace and love. Because of that, at the same time God told Adam and Eve the judgment for their sins, He also promised that one day salvation for them would come and the breach would be healed. From Genesis to Jesus' cry of Tetelestai on the cross, the Bible tells the story of how God worked out that salvation to a predetermined conclusion throughout human history. Thousands of years intervened. The Old Testament tells the story of how God focused on one man, Abraham, and one people, Israel, as his living messengers, to show that he was not finished with humanity, that he was working out a plan of salvation. The rest of the Old Testament story of kings and prophets, the faith and failure, all led up to the climax of the salvation story centered in the life and sacrificial death of Jesus. All the Easter sermons about Tertelestai tell the story of how God's salvation plan was complete when Jesus died on the cross, That makes sense. It is all well and good. But, as I thought about it, the lengthy history leading to Jesus' death on the cross raised questions that I'd now like to explore. First of all, why did it take so long? Why the millennia of stories of humanity struggling and suffering? Why the pain and death? Why the horrors and tragedies of human history? Why does human suffering continue for what Adam and Eve did? God being an all-powerful God, why couldn't he simply make it better immediately after the fall? If you really love someone, don't you give them what they want as soon as they want it? (laughs) We obviously know the answer to that question is no. Anyone who cares for a child knows that you give a child what they want immediately after they want it. You will end up with a spoiled child. And I think more than a lesson in good child raising is going on here. There are aspects of the character of God that he will not violate, even though one of his characteristics is that he is all-powerful. He cannot lie. He cannot quit acting in love. There are limits he will not violate that we cannot comprehend. Perhaps the long story of salvation was what it was, is what it is, because it could not be any other way. Perhaps it has taken so long from our human viewpoint to illustrate in a way nothing else could the immensity of evil in a choice to turn away from God and at the same time the immensity of grace from a loving God to work through history the long-term plan of salvation. Whatever the reason, the story of humanity's salvation had a predetermined ending And when Jesus died on the cross, he declared it with the cry, It is finished! Or in the Greek New Testament, tetelestai. Scholars and commentators have made much of the word tetelestai. Some have commented that it was a word used to mark the cancellation of debts and how the death of Christ paid the debt we owed God. That debt was illustrated in the sacrificial system through the thousands of years of Jewish history where an innocent lamb was sacrificed as a temporary covering for sin. Jesus' death was the final payment no more sacrifices were necessary after Jesus died. Even the grammar of the word illustrates the finality of his actions. Tetelestai is in the Greek aorist tense, which means it defines an action that took place in a point in time and has consequences that continue indefinitely. Jesus' death on the cross was a one-time action and the effects of it last forever. All the comments above are accurate about the Greek word, tetelestai, and the meanings just mentioned are what the readers of the Greek New Testament would have understood from the word itself. But there's one picky little issue here that bothered me. I couldn't help myself, though I feel guilty about even asking this question about the word tetelestai. I feel guilty because I do not want what I'm going to bring up to cast a bad light on the many sermons that share what I just did. That Jesus' death on the cross finished the long work of salvation that God planned from the time Adam and Eve sinned. The meaning of tetelestai is accurate. The implications of the translation of the word are valid, and the word itself is a great reminder of the finality and glorious work of Jesus' death on the cross. The picky little issue that remained was because I kept researching, and I confirmed that tetelestai was not what Jesus actually said. He didn't speak Greek from the cross. He spoke Aramaic. None of the Gospels are written in Aramaic. They're all written in Greek. They do quote one phrase in Aramaic from the cross when Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quote from Psalm 22. Why they quote this cry of abandonment in Aramaic, but not Jesus' final cry, we do not know. Some might argue, and rightfully so, that it does not matter that he spoke Aramaic and not Greek, as the meaning of tetalesa is clear and the translation of the word he actually spoke into Greek is accurate. Yet looking at the possible Aramaic word of what Jesus said adds additional depth and meaning to his final word. So what is it that he said? What did he actually say? One suggestion by a number of scholars as I researched it is that the phrase he spoke in the Aramaic was Masalem. The root word Masalem is, of course, Salem, which comes from a word many of us are familiar with, Shalom, which means peace. The meaning of the biblical concept of shalom is not merely the absence of conflict, but an all-encompassing wholeness, restoration, and tranquility. It is a way of living totally at rest with and in God. It is the kind of peace Jesus promised when he said, I am leaving, leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is not fragile like the peace the world gives. So do not be troubled or afraid. Prior to that, shalom or peace is actually part of the oldest benediction in the Bible recorded in Numbers six twenty four and twenty six, where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Give you shalom. When we add the Hebrew tense to the root word, Masalem could be translated, the peace has been accomplished. Isn't that neat? Let me read that again. The translation of what he most likely actually said, Masalem is, the peace has been accomplished. From this we see that Masalem is a little more expansive in its meaning than tetelestai, as it tells us what's finished. In this case, the conflict between humanity and our Creator. We are now at peace. A relationship of peace, of shalom, was the relationship God created people to have with Him in the Garden of Eden. And that is the relationship humanity will have when all things are restored in the new heaven and the new earth. That is the Shalom, the peace, the salem Jesus accomplished with His death on the cross. That is an astounding future to look forward to. But my restless heart has one more question. If ultimate spiritual peace between us and God was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross, why aren't we experiencing peace in much of our life now? The work of securing our salvation may be finished, and in some massively cosmic way, a conflict between humanity and God might be at peace. But when I look at my life my daily struggles and the battles the world has been fighting with the pandemic and the wars that are raging now. Though I can't deny there are times of supernatural inner peace in the midst of all that's going on. Why do so many struggles continue? Why are we still fighting inside and out? Where is the finished work? Where is the peace it brought by the death of Christ? Similar to my previous question and the answer of why did God take so long to work out the plan of salvation through the thousands of years of Old Testament history, we don't know the answer to that question and we don't ultimately know the answer to this one either. To why, if peace has been accomplished on the cross, why there's so much war inside us and outside in our world. Though we do not have a definitive answer why, it can help us accept our current situation when we understand that the answer to this dilemma, like many others in the Christian faith, is a paradox. A paradox, according to dictionary.com, is a self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. In other words, two things that appear to be contradictory may, on a level we may not fully comprehend, both be true. That Jesus' death brought us finished peace, and that we do not experience that peace at this time, is a paradox in that way. One of my seminary professors years ago said that paradoxes were at the core of the Christian faith. The reality that Jesus is both divine and human is a paradox. That the Bible is a product of human creation, and yet divine authorship is a paradox. That God is in control of all things, yet we have free choice, is a paradox though unfortunately I don't remember which professor or which class this came from, I found it comforting over the years to know that we do not have to explain or understand every paradox in the Christian faith for me to trust the Creator of them. Here we have the paradox of the work of salvation, the accomplishment of peace with God taking place on the cross, and yet the reality of the battles we still fight— and the lack of peace in our lives. Both realities are true, God's peace and our current battles. It is useful to examine this paradox, it is our reality after all, and ask why does God have us go through so many battles between his finished work on the cross and his wrapping up of human history? I would like to share an analogy that I found helpful and some advice from the Bible on how we ought to live until our time on earth is finished, how to live between the reality of peace accomplished and our complete experience of it. The analogy that helps me, and I hope it will help you live in this in-between time, is that of ongoing spiritual warfare. Though something was finished on the cross, we are obviously still involved in a war. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Chapter 6 in Ephesians continues with encouragements on how to arm ourselves for this battle. Jesus makes it very blunt about our situation in Luke eleven twenty-three, and the message translation makes his point really clear when it says this is war there's no neutral ground if you're not on my side you're the enemy if you're not helping you're making things worse in many places the New Testament is filled with analogies of spiritual warfare and the history of the church is filled with the history of spiritual and physical battles in the name of Christ So here we are. On the one hand, we have Jesus' cry of Tetelestai on Good Friday and his glorious resurrection on Easter. On the other hand, we have the often brutal battles, warfare inside and outside, big and small battles that flood our lives the Monday after Easter. That we are in a war is obvious, but one more analogy helps me make the most sense of it. I think that for Christians today, It is like it was between the time of the Battle of D-Day, when the Allies hit the beaches in Normandy on June 6, 1944, and the unconditional surrender by Germany on May 7, 1945. Now, this is not to diminish all the battles, what I'm going to say, that continued in the Pacific, but for this discussion, I'm only going to focus on the European theater of war. With the Allied victory on the beaches of Normandy, considered one of the greatest military offensives in the history of the world, the outcome of the war was decided. It was finished. The outcome of peace was assured. Germany would not win the war. But the war was not over. When Jesus proclaimed Teltalesti, victory was assured. But the war was not over. Of the many stories and battles that took place in the intervening time, I would like to comment on two of them from World War II that have encouraged me in my ongoing spiritual battles. The first is the story of the French resistance in Paris. D-Day was on May 7, 1945, but Paris was not liberated until August 25, 1944. As they had during the four years of German occupation, the French resistance in Paris continued to fight. They could not quit because of the success of D-Day. They had to stay strong. They worked hard to encourage others. Victory is coming. We will be liberated was their message and that message was lived out in their actions. As a church communicator, I've been fascinated by their work as their communications were just as important as their physical battles. They set up clandestine printing presses, they published newsletters and posters, they operated secret wireless radio channels, which in many ways were the podcasting of the day. History records their communications kept, others encouraged, fighting, and ultimately victorious. This was no comfortable communication job in a safe church office. They operated behind enemy lines, often without support, reliable supplies, or any hope of making it out alive. Though their victories might appear small in the larger scheme of the war, they were vital to the overall victory. A rail line blown up, a road blocked, a bridge destroyed, a population encouraged to resist by wireless messages, a poster, or newsletter with a message to not give up, to hold on till victory arrived. Each and every action made an immeasurable difference in the outcome of the war. They knew also that if they were caught, torture imprisonment and death awaited them. They were not given the honor of a captured soldier. When they were caught, they were brutalized by the German army that they'd successfully defeated again and again. And sadly, a number of them committed suicide in prison rather than give up the names of their comrades under torture. The second example that I like to look at is the Battle of the Bulge. Now, there's a personal note here. Before I started researching this topic, which for me means running down any number of interesting tangents to pull together what seems necessary in my final conclusions, I realized I was wrong in what I'd always thought about the Battle of the Bulge. It took place much later in the war than I had assumed before. It took place after D-Day, when the outcome of the war was certain. This dating reality is important to me personally and emotionally. I will explain why in a little bit, but it reinforced to me the importance of a proper chronology to understand any historical event which is why I recommend we read the Bible chronologically to correctly understand the Bible. I have extensive materials on why you should do that, why you should read your Bible in chronological order, the life-changing benefits of it, why the books of the Bible aren't in chronological order in the Bibles that we have, schedules and commentary and all those kinds of things to help you on www.bible805.com please do check that out. It will make a huge difference in strengthening you for the spiritual battles that you need to fight. Now, back to the Battle of the Bulge itself. In addition to the underground resistance, there were larger battles fought after D-Day that give us some insight on what it means to fight after the overall outcome of the war is decided. In World War II, the battles continued. The largest one, was the Battle of the Bulge, the last German offensive of the war. History.com describes it in this way. Hitler's mid-December timing of the attack, one of the bloodiest of the war, was strategic. As freezing rain, thick fog, deep snow drifts, and record-breaking low temperatures brutalized the American troops, more than 15,000 cold injuries, trench foot, pneumonia, frostbite, were reported that winter. The battle lasted over a month, during which there were over 100,000 casualties and 19,000 died. They were particularly tragic because in many ways they were unnecessary deaths, because these deaths did not contribute to either strategic advantage or the outcome of the war. My uncle, my father's only brother, was one of them who died in the Battle of the Bulge. "'We have the postcard that he wrote to his family on Christmas Eve from the battlefield, and his purple heart. "'They never recovered his body, and my grandmother, a widow who lived alone on a farm in Nebraska, "'always hoped he'd come home. Of course he never did.' The sadness of his death and loss of an only brother and second son colored our family history as it did thousands of other families who lost even more. My father came home from the war after fighting in North Africa, in Italy, and ending the war as one of the mop-up troops at Hiroshima. For many families, no one came home, and those who did were never whole. The costs paid by the resistance and the Allied armies between D Day and the end of the war were great. But not everyone paid a price at that time. Not everyone was against the Nazis. When Germany took control, some cooperated. They were collaborators. For a time, might made right, the easy way seemed the prudent way. Collaborators sided with the Nazis. It may have started simply as not standing up for a Jewish neighbor for some sometimes killed their native compatriots. Perhaps the money was too good, perhaps their fear too great. Collaboration seemed like a smart thing to do, until it was not. I would love to go on and on and tell more war stories. I'm inspired by military history as the analogies to spiritual warfare abound, but we need to move on. As we look at the examples of the resistance, the allied armies, and the collaborators, here are our thoughts on the application of these lessons for our battles. C.S. Lewis describes our situation in this in-between time, between the cry of Tetelestai and the return of Jesus to make all things new, in mere Christianity, where he said, Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That sounds like a description of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. They knew They were in enemy-occupied territory. They were not focused on this earth and what they could get out of it. As Hebrews 11.13 says, These men, these people of faith, I have mentioned, died without ever receiving all that God had promised them. But they saw it all awaiting them on ahead, and they were glad, for they agreed that this earth was not their real home, but that they were just strangers visiting down here. They had a vision beyond themselves, beyond the oppression of their current circumstances, is what the heroes of the faith, the resistance fighters, the thousands of unnamed allied troops who fought the final battles of World War II had in common. The vision was of a final victory, and though they could not see it as yet, they held firm and they fought for it. The Apostle Paul had the same focus when he said, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. The none of these things he refers to were not little irritations. He was rejected by the religious and intellectual world he'd grown up in when he declared that Jesus was the Messiah. When he followed Jesus' call to preach that message, it did not result in what we would call a successful ministry. He would go to a town, preach for a time, then either get kicked out, imprisoned, stoned, flogged, or almost killed. He would leave that town and go to the next one. The process of proclamation and rejection followed. His ministry ended by Paul being imprisoned in a Roman underground dungeon and taken from it to be beheaded. That is the history of his life. Amid that, he did not let himself get distracted from his goal. Note the phrase that defines his goal. It was to finish my course. And as you might have already realized, here again is the word, the Greek word teleo. It is the same root word as tetelestai, and it means to finish. Strong's concordance expands the meaning of to finish in this way where it says that it means to make a perfect to make perfect complete to carry through completely to accomplish bring to an end to add what is yet wanting in order to render a thing full to bring to close or fulfillment paul did not allow anything, not rejection, not pain, not suffering, imprisonment, or anything else to distract him from the ending point God had given him to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's life in fulfilling that goal was not easy, but untold multitudes of people will live forever with God because of his tenacity in preaching and in writing a large part of what makes up our New Testament today. Another important thing as life illustrates is that what we do to finish our race is not only about us. Paul stayed connected with many people he ministered to and with, but there were many others he knew nothing about whose writings influenced He did not judge his success by how many likes he got or the immediate or the immediate popularity or not of his message. Ultimately, only God knows how our lives touch others, but the lesson for us in this is that what we do, how we live, does not impact us alone. A friend recently reminded me of Russell Crowe in Gladiator, when he said, What we do in life echoes throughout eternity. How we conduct ourselves in the battles before our rightful king makes his authority known is important. What we say or do to create echoes throughout eternity matters. The echoes through eternity matter more than only to the earthly people who view our lives. Here again is mystery and unanswered questions. But when we look at the book of Job and please see my lessons on Genesis and Job, Answers to the Big Questions of Life, it's on www.bible805.com Job is the earliest of all the written material in our Bible. And in the first chapter, God asks Satan who has been wandering the earth, Have you considered my servant Job? Here is not the place to go into all the implications of that statement and the many lessons that follow from it. Again, see my lessons on Job for a lengthy, in-depth discussion on that. But the thing to note here, is that in this exchange between God and Satan, their observation of Job's life was whether it witnessed to a trust in God or not. Job went through horrific suffering and loss, and though he was restored, he had no idea in his earthly life that his life was on display for the hosts of heaven to see if he trusted God when all God blessed him with was taken away. The tests in the book of Job are not presented as a one-time, unique situation. Ephesians 6 again, 12, indicates that it is an ongoing battle when it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Consider also that Peter tells us Satan continues to do the same thing he did when he was wandering the earth in Job, when at first Peter five eight it says, where where Peter cautions believers, where he says, To be self controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. This reality of unseen personages and powers at the edges of our perception, it's unsettling and there's much confusion about it. Now in this there is no evidence in Scripture that deceased relatives are watching you or watching over you. But we do know God and his angels are always watching over us. As to the demonic forces, we do not know how much or when they interfere in our lives, but we need to be alert to that reality, as Peter reminds us. Peter also reminds us in verse 9 that we are to resist them. And, again, in Ephesians 6, it tells us to do that with the full armor of God. We have no idea of the spiritual forces taking note of our actions and watching to see if we keep faith in God and trust Him in good times and challenging times. I pray our faith stands up to whatever tests and accusations Satan throws at us. With that in mind, as I've shared before, sometimes when life is particularly difficult and it is hard to trust that God does love me, and has the best in mind for me when everything inside me, like Job's wife, wants to just curse God and die. I like to shake my fists at the heavens and say out loud, I believe you are a good God. I want to shout out an echo into eternity and in some tiny way show Satan and whatever spiritual hosts who may be watching that I do not trust God only when things are going well and I am blessed. I trust him when I am confused, crushed, and in a puddle of tears because I know the real battle is over and a coming victory is assured. In conclusion, what should we do now as we celebrate that Jesus finished the work of salvation and yet we still fight? I pray this discussion is more than an interesting diversion of a fun to say Greek word for all of us. I pray we all take time to evaluate our lives. First, honestly ask if we are engaged in the great campaign of sabotage for the kingdom of God Or are we living as a collaborator with an earthly kingdom that will not last? Are we going along with what the world tells us is our best life now? That we deserve everything we want? That if we can dream it, we can do it? And all the assorted claptrap of affirmations on social media and the best-selling books that constantly push us to focus on ourselves. We might not think of overtly sinning. We might even focus on good things. But do we see, in the use of our time and money, a primary focus on ourselves, on what makes us feel good above all else? Do we tell ourselves that later, when whatever happens we're waiting to have happen, that then we will focus on others and doing more God-centered things? Are we ignoring the needs of others, knowing the needs of our world and our neighborhood are immense? We cannot claim we know nothing about them because even the most secular media screams the pain of the world to us nightly. Are we putting off doing what we know is God's specific calling on our lives? If we are uncomfortable with our answers to these questions, it might be a sign that we are collaborating with the enemy. Collaboration might be comfortable now, might seem like the sensible thing to do, but it will not end well. Additional advice from the French Resistance. The French Resistance was not a disorganized gang of anti-German fanatics. They had manuals of extensive training, tactics, and a code of conduct. We do well to follow their example. In doing that, Are you unsure of what it means to be a resistance fighter for the kingdom of God? Are you uncertain of your calling, of what your assignment for God might be? Your Bible will tell you. It is your manual for training, tactics, and code of conduct. It has inspiring stories and specific advice on how to fight the good fight. BibleEto5.com has plans and resources to help you know, trust, and apply the Bible. Please make good use of it. Read your Bible daily as you read journal about what it is telling you. Ask God to let you know what you need to do to finish your course with joy. Start with obedience to simple things and that obedience will tune your heart to an attitude of listening to God that can grow into obedience in greater areas. Attempt to look beyond the pains and pleasures of this earth to what is eternal as you set your goals and dream your dreams because for each of us the battle will be over before we think we're ready. Do now for God what you intend to do in an uncertain future. Determine to finish well. Whether death takes you home to Jesus or whether you are alive when he returns and finally liberates planet Earth, what will be your report to your commander-in-chief? Will you cringe as a collaborator or celebrate as part of the resistance army for the Kingdom of God? If you aren't sure, if you want to make changes to step up and fight for the glory of your Lord before the hosts of heaven, start today. I pray when we are called to give an account of how we fought our battles, that we will all celebrate having fought the good fight and finished the work Jesus called each of us to do. With victory, may we shout, die, It is finished. The victory is won. The battle over The peace is accomplished forevermore. That's all for now. As always, please check out the additional materials related to this lesson on www.bible805.com. And for this one, I have an e-book that I wrote to go along with it. If you want to study and think through this topic in more detail, please do check that out. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.